Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome into the fade. I am Clay Travis. He is Todd Furman and we are off and rolling. I appreciate all of you hanging out with us. I hope you had a better gambling weekend than I did but it is important to acknowledge that my team the Tennessee Titans the new America's team I think my connection starting to break up. I, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I think my connection starting to break up. Over the course of six days two home games a win over the Buffalo Bills and then an unmitigated without any uh, without anything else other than pure beatdown spectacular first half against the Kansas City Chiefs. Furman, I texted you during the game. I said, hey, where are we going out to dinner in LA when the Titans are in the Super Bowl? We're up to, I think, the fourth favorite in the AFC. I think, and that's still behind the Chiefs, which I think is crazy. Are you starting to believe that my Titans are a legitimate AFC title contender? Well, I think what impressed me the most from the Titans' performance, not necessarily against the Bills, but against the Chiefs this weekend, is that they were able to do it without leaning entirely on Derrick Henry. To Kansas City's credit, they did a good job at least bottling him up for long stretches, much like they did in the playoff game a couple of years ago. It was finally vintage Titans passing attack that we hadn't seen for the better part of the first five or six games. Ryan Tannehill operating with ruthless efficiency, off of play action. We saw what that tandem of wide receivers can do when both of them are on the field. And Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. And you do have to give the defense full marks. It's a secondary that's banged up, and I had some major concerns going into the game how they would hold up. But they're able to get a little bit of pressure. Maybe they're coming around. I know they spent a ton of money kind of retooling on that side of the ball. And I'm not going to take anything away from what they were able to do in the span of six days. Like you said, two outright upsets against AFC favorites. I think the Chiefs have a lot bigger problems that they're going to have to try and sort out. But that win over the Bills, in my opinion, will only look better as the season progresses. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, again, we'll come back to America's team maybe in, uh, in, in a little bit here. But Saints-Seahawks. Uh, Saints-Seahawks is going on tonight, kicking off in a couple of hours. Saints around a four-point uh, favorite. It's Geno Smith against Jameis Winston. Uh, in a uh, crazy twist after Drew Brees against Russell Wilson would have been the storyline in this game for the past several years. Over-under also very low I think down around 41. I'm on the under in this game and I just I don't think you can bet on Geno so I think I'm going to have to hop on the Saints and Jameis Winston here. Do you like this game? How are you playing it? Yeah, I like the under in the first half, though. I get a little concerned with these two quarterbacks if either one of them has to play from behind and is in known passing situations, how squirrely this thing could get. We will have a little bit of weather in the forecast and we'll see if it can actually help underbetters more than what we saw unfold in Sunday Night Football between the Colts and 49ers. What's crazy about the Saints is we've grown accustomed to them being a pass-happy offense. When you had a surefire Hall of Famer and Drew Brees operating out there, getting the ball to the likes of Michael Thomas in space, utilizing Alvin Kamara. It was a pass-happy attack. 
So far this season, the Saints have really been a run-first offense. They're running the ball at a greater clip than any team in the National Football League. And coming into this weekend, it was 4% higher than even the Chicago Bears. You give Sean Payton a world of credit for playing to his team's skill set and, of course, trying to minimize the damage that Jameis Winston can do, given the interceptions he's been prone to in the past. Alvin Kamara's work rate is through the roof. The yardage isn't quite there. But this is a Saints team who doesn't get enough credit for what they bring to the table on the defensive side. And I think if they're able to sell out and stop the run and force Geno Smith to beat them with his arm, things won't go well there in any regard. I like the game under in the first half more so than the full game. As far as the side's concerned, it's interesting. I've seen good two-way action on this uh, in terms of people making a case for the road favorite here, knowing how well teams perform in this particular role coming off of a bye. Uh, and, of course, for the home underdog, knowing that should be one of the more electric atmospheres, even without Russell Wilson, with the Seahawks' playoff future kind of hanging in the balance tonight. Uh, Furman, I am headed down to uh, down to Houston. Uh, we are doing this show, obviously, on Monday as we get ready for Monday Night Football. But Tuesday and Wednesday, games one and two of the World Series, the Braves on the road against the Astros. How do you break this down? I'm looking right now at uh, game one uh, numbers. Uh, hold on, let me pull up. I'm at FanDuel. You can get your bets in at FanDuel.com slash Clay. Uh, Astros minus 136 over under 8 relatively even numbers here Uh, World Series odds also relatively even Astros minus 150 Braves plus 125 how do you break down this matchup? So for me when I look at this series overall I think the Braves have a decided edge on the pitching department you know their bullpen has been a major question mark to their credit, they were able to try and solidify the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings, not without uh, a couple of Maalox masher-type moments for Brave fans like yourself. But I think the biggest absence for the Astros is Lance McCullers. He was this team's bona fide ace atop the rotation. And without him, everybody else has to carry out a bigger responsibility. And I just have major concerns right now about how the Astros were able to go out there and silence the Brave bat, Braves' bats that have been white hot since Ronald Acuna went out. I think the Braves' offense can carry them. They have enough young arms. It wouldn't shock me if they lost game one, but when it comes to the 2-3-2 two, two format, I don't think losing game one is a death knell by any stretch. Uh, I think the Braves finally bring that World Series crown back to uh, your beloved Atlanta after, what, a 20-plus year drought or so? Since 95. First time in the World Series since 99. First time in, uh, in uh, the World Series if they were to win it since going all the way back to 1995 and of course I love this because it's a kick in the teeth to Rob Manfred uh, who wouldn't allow the Braves to host the All-Star game so they one-upped them by hosting the NLCS and now they're going to have three games in the the World Series. Let me hit you here Furman. I just bet literally as we were talking on the World Series MVP. Austin Riley is all the way down at 16-1. to What in the world have people been watching that Austin Riley would be around the ninth favorite to be the MVP with the way he's been hitting? uh, That seems like an incredible value to me. I think the MVP, when you're talking about a World Series type performance, is always one of those bets that's so interesting to attack because all it takes is a signature performance in one game that can kind of catapult you over the top. I mean, we saw it with the Washington Nationals when they won the World Series. Steven Strasburg goes out there. And I'm not even sure he was the best player in the series, but for that seminal moment, he was the difference maker the team needed. So 
you're talking about Austin Riley and what he's meant offensively to the Braves. I think he becomes a forgotten storyline for the casual baseball fan and nothing, no, no knock against him by any stretch because he's been so pivotal for what they're doing in the middle of the lineup. But, you know, Freddie Freeman were to go out there and hit a couple of bombs and try and, you know, take over the narrative in this. I think you could see him stealing away the hardware, but I would agree with you. I think going into the series, a price like that, given what Riley's produced so far this postseason makes an awful lot of sense. It's definitely worth the small investment. Um, looking at the, okay, let's so that's what's going on in the World Series. Let's go back to the uh, NFL for a minute here. I'm looking at the latest odds for Super Bowl champs. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, according to FanDuel. Again, you can get your bets in at fanduel.com slash clay. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 5-1. to one. Bills, 5.5-1. to one. Cardinals, 8.5-1. to one. Rams, just shy of 10-1. to one. And then you've got the Ravens at 10-1. to one. The Chiefs at 11-1. to one. Packers, 11-1. to one. Cowboys, 12-1. to one. America's team, the Tennessee Titans at 18-1. to one. All right, I want to go to the Chiefs. 11 to 1 for the Chiefs sitting at 3 and 4 where they would likely be a substantial underdog at least they should be if you look at their schedule coming up their next four they should beat the Giants and they got three really tough games. I think the chances of them winning their division are actually pretty low. It's like people won't quit on the Chiefs. Are they still overvalued at 11 to 1? I would bet him at 11-1 as far as the Lombardi Trophy is concerned. I think when you look at this team, clearly there are a lot bigger issues that they need to fix, whether it's the offense pressing in the wake of some of their defensive shortcomings, the offensive line that hasn't come together nearly as quickly as a lot of Chiefs fans and within the organization believed it could with so many fresh faces. I don't think it's as simple as waving the magic wand and suddenly Kansas City goes from being a 3-4 and four football team to hanging 40 on the board Week in, week out, you begin to look at their schedule, not only going forward, but who they've played already. I mean, where's the marquee victory anywhere that Kansas City has been able to accomplish? I guess it's the Browns week one, a game they were fortunate to win. You take care of business on the road against a beleaguered Washington football team. You do so against Philadelphia. I mean, those aren't the kind of wins that you expect from a Super Bowl contender. But the one thing, and we talk about it all the time when it comes to the future book, there's no incentive for books to really rapidly drop Kansas City down because if they were to go to, say, 20, 25, maybe even 30 to 1, the liability going to a Patrick Mahomes-led team with Andy Reid on the sidelines would get ratcheted up pretty quickly. So rather than completely discarding them, you're going to see them inch down gradually. But you bring up an excellent point, talking about how much more difficult the road is to getting to Los Angeles to play in the Super Bowl for the third straight year when you're not the division champion, you have to go out on the road to potentially the likes of Western New York and take on the Bills. We'll see who emerges atop the heap in the AFC North. Uh, I think the Chiefs have a lot of work out in front of them, and I'd probably be more inclined to bet them to miss the playoffs than I would be to take the 11-1 if they win the Lombardi Trophy. Um, best game for the NFL in Week 8 is on Thursday night, in my opinion, which is rare. The Cardinals, who are still undefeated, 7-0, and hosting the Packers. Packers have some COVID issues at least in their coaching staff so far. You have an early read on Packers at Cardinals? Well, not only the coaching staff but a little while ago uh, we saw some news break that the Packers could be going to the desert without their marquee offensive weapon. Devontae Adams in the COVID protocol as well. Oh, wow. So that'll, that'll have a fundamental impact on the number. You'd have been looking at Arizona right in that three, three and a half range. I think the public would have backed Green Bay. But I wouldn't be surprised to see this number inch much closer to a touchdown along with a total that'll come down 
if he's unable to clear. And, of course, this is a Green Bay offense where everything runs through Aaron Rodgers and, of course, Devontae Adams. They have some other difference makers out there, but I think you start to see a more run-heavy attack and lean on A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones, and you see if other players can step up. Defensively, this Green Bay team, I, I think, is fool's gold, to say the least. So when you look at what Cliff Kingsbury and Arizona's offense can bring to the table, there's no reason for me to believe Arizona can't do what they want when they want. What's been interesting, though, Clay, about this Cardinals offense, despite an effort where they were sleepwalking against the Houston Texans, I mean, Kyler Murray's not running the ball, and I think part of that's by design. Part of it's because he's been nicked up. But once he starts to use his legs, it gives them another element. And I think this is a game in front of a national TV audience on Fox where the Cardinals can assert their dominance in the NFC, especially if Green Bay is forced to go to battle without Devontae Adams. Um, You know what? I think the second best game in the NFL in Week 8, at least in terms of its significance, significance might be the Titans on the road against the Colts I'm looking at FanDuel uh, here in the state of Tennessee they have the Titans as a one point favorite against the Colts Uh, basically nearly even here that's rare Uh, we may end up with a straight pick what do you see here and, and what's the significance Uh, I think this is the kind of spot where the Titans have historically let you and the rest of the fan base down when you're ready to anoint them you know, AFC co-favorites or thereabouts. And you would expect a little bit of a letdown here after the two big home games against the Bills, against the Kansas City Chiefs, the home win earlier this year against the Colts. And for all intents and purposes, the Colts kind of kept their season on life support with the win in the rain against San Francisco last night. I think they're going to have to kind of run back a very similar effort here against the Tennessee Titans. And while Carson Wentz is going to draw all sorts of criticism that he hasn't looked the part given what they gave up, I actually think Wentz has grasped this offense a little bit faster than I anticipated. I mean, the Colts are still operating without two key cogs potentially in the receiving core. We know Paris Campbell on IR. We'll see if T.Y. Hilton is able to get back out there and play. But it's Michael Pittman, some tight ends, and one of the league's best running backs not named Derrick Henry and Jonathan Taylor. For me, with money coming in early on the Titans and them leaking into the road favorite territory, uh, the only case I could make is backing Indy in their own building. And I think they make an excellent teaser option as well if you can get them up through a touchdown. I think you're right. This is one of the games that's going to have one of the biggest impacts as far as the NFL slate. Because if the Titans end up sweeping the season series against the Colts, given where they are now, I mean, they can coast to a division crown, even with their schedule getting a little bit more difficult in the middle before it really softens up, I think, weeks 14 through 18. Yeah, actually, the Titans, I believe, only have one more team, two more teams with winning records on their schedule right now. Now, obviously, things can change about that. The Rams at at, at LA is going to be a very tough game. They play the Saints. We'll see how the Saints do tonight. But I believe those are the only two teams with winning records the Titans have left on their schedule uh, in the final 10 weeks. We'll see whether that remains consistent. Any other early Week 8 NFL action that's got your attention? Yeah, I think the Sunday night football game is fascinating. When you look at the Dallas Cowboys, clearly uh, they've overachieved early on in the season. Dak Prescott showing no side effects uh, of that gruesome leg injury a season ago. Ezekiel Elliott, I mean, people were ripping him when he came into hard knocks and going, yeah, he may be slimmer, he may be trimmer, let's see what we're going to get. And of course, after week one, when the Cowboys didn't use him, I think there were fantasy owners everywhere that wanted to cut bait. But This is a team that's dynamic offensively. Dan Quinn has actually had a positive impact on the defense. You're seeing Trevon Diggs' odds extremely short for defensive player of the year, given what he's meant in that defensive backfield. Uh, But this is also a Vikings team that, despite their 3-3 record, 
Uh, a little bit of luck, and they beat Arizona on the road. A little bit of luck, and they take care of the Cincinnati Bengals. I think this Vikings team is going to be up for the challenge. And while Kirk Cousins hasn't exactly performed all that well historically in games of this magnitude, I think the Vikings are going to be live underdogs on Sunday night. I think their defense will provide a little bit of a test. And it's actually the first living, breathing offense that the Cowboys will face, arguably since their trip out to Los Angeles to take on the Chargers. Uh, let's go to college football here for a moment. It was kind of other than, I guess, Oregon surviving UCLA and Penn State losing to Illinois, a blah week in terms of its overall long-term impact. I want to hit you with several games that stand out to me uh, as being particularly significant. I've got five here and I'm going to run through them and see what early read you have on them. Uh, Michigan, three and a half point favorite at Michigan State. Surprising Spartans under Mel Tucker are 7-0. and Jim Harbaugh's team also undefeated. The Wolverines, a little bit over a field goal road favorite. Your early read on the battle for Michigan. I mean, you hate to say it, but this is the kind of game play that doesn't Coach Harbaugh have to win? I know yes. it's not Ohio State, but you're undefeated. It's an in-state rival. Nobody expected either of these teams, honestly, to be this good or unblemished as you go into Halloween weekend. But here we are. Cade McNamara and company, he leans on a talented ground game. It's ground and pound for Michigan just the way Coach Harbaugh likes it. Play a little defense. Meanwhile, Michigan State comes in off the bye. Kenneth Walker going to be an absolute force for Michigan to contend with. But you do begin to wonder, Indiana was able to establish a little bit of a blueprint for how you slow down Walker, how you're able to keep Peyton Thorne and his talented tandem of wide receivers in check. I look at this total, and I actually think that's the best market to attack. I like it under the total. I don't think either of these teams are going to go out there and hit a ton of big plays. I think it's the first team to 27. And I actually lean Michigan in this spot, laying the points on the road in East Lansing. I've been reluctant to buy into what Mel Tucker's, Tucker's done. No discrediting this by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it's Michigan or pass, but my favorite investment here would be going under the total. All right, I'm going to be down at the cocktail party. Fun weekend of uh, of action. World Series that Sunday, great game for the Titans to whip the Chiefs as we talked about earlier, the new America's team, the Tennessee Titans. Uh, I'm going to be down at the World Series Tuesday, Wednesday, then bouncing down to Jacksonville. Georgia right now, a 13.5 point favorite against the Gators. Maybe the last team on Georgia's schedule that has any hope of providing any sort of significant challenge at all. What happens? What does this line tell you? It tells me that Florida's got more than a puncher's chance in this particular spot. You're right. Georgia wins this game. You may as well already roll out the red carpet, welcome them to Atlanta for a head-to-head matchup, most likely with Alabama, for the SEC championship game. And that one probably loses a little bit of luster because if Georgia were to go in there unbeaten, I think they could lose to Alabama and still find their way into the college football playoff. But here comes Florida looking to try and salvage their season. Quarterback questions plenty. Will it be Anthony Richardson taking the majority of the snaps? Will it be Emory Jones? What do we think Florida's game plan is going to look like? And more importantly, can they hold up defensively? Because when you go through what Georgia's played so far this year, yes, the Arkansas game was theoretically a challenge. The Kentucky game wasn't nearly as close as that final score indicated. But I would think Florida can provide a slightly more balanced attack uh, I'm sl- mildly surprised as well. This total has inched up from 50 out to 51, which is uncharacteristic for where we've seen Georgia games. But I think the big question here, if you're looking to lay the 14 with Georgia, will we finally get a JT Daniels sighting out there? Because this may be a game where Georgia has to be more balanced. And it's not taking anything away from what Stetson Bennett has accomplished, but he is a game manager out there. 
mainly to hand the ball off, operate off of play action, and a few big plays over the top. I lean towards the Gators plus 14, but nothing to really get involved with right now. I think it's going to be a great football game, and we can only hope it's competitive from start to finish that we get to see this Georgia Bulldogs team who's rarely been pushed, tested deep into the fourth quarter. Kentucky, this one kind of surprised me. I was looking to be on state, but I was hoping I'd be getting some points. Right now, as we're talking on Monday evening afternoon, Kentucky is an underdog on the road at Mississippi State. Uh, The Bulldogs, a half point or a point favorite depending on where you are looking. Does that surprise you? What does it tell you about uh, oddsmakers' belief in the Kentucky Wildcats? I think it speaks volumes about honestly where both of these teams are so far this season. I mean, Kentucky, we know what they want to do. They want to establish the ground game. They want to hand the ball off to Chris Rodriguez 25 to 30 times, shorten the contest, and lead on a defense that's probably exceeded my expectations from where I thought they'd be coming into the year. Meanwhile, Mississippi State, they'll spread you out. We'll get a ton of tunnel screens and everything else that Mike Leach has made famous at all, all of his stops along the way. But I look at Mississippi State defensively, and I actually think this is where they have a little bit of a strength that doesn't get nearly the credit it deserves. Yes, they've been deficient against the pass. We saw Alabama carve them up to the tune of 49 points. But I think knowing that Kentucky is relatively one-dimensional, if they have an answer for Wandale Robinson, uh, this could play into the Bulldogs' hands. Uh, I think it's going to be a great game when they'll probably fly under the radar as far as the national landscape is concerned, but not in the SEC. You probably have major bowl implications, not necessarily for New Year's Six, but obviously the pecking order for the SEC. But I was like you. I was hoping we were going to get a little bit more value with the home underdog here. At three, I probably would have inched closer to taking Mississippi State. Total at 47, extremely tight as well. Uh, and I think as things stand right now, there's not really a compelling angle from a wagering perspective to run and jump into the deep end of the pool as far as Monday morning's concerned. Uh, all right, couple more here. Ole Miss at Auburn. You got Auburn out to a two-and-a-half-point favorite. Um, that would be a big win uh, for Brian Harson in year one. Also, would allow Auburn, potentially, to make a claim to be in the third-best team in the SEC. We know Alabama. We know Georgia. If Auburn were able to knock Ole Miss off, that would be a pretty solid win for them. Uh, Matt Corral has been phenomenal the past two weeks almost single-handedly won the game on the road against Tennessee took over in the second half against LSU what happens on the Plains on Saturday? I think it's an interesting game for a lot of the reasons you outlined when you're talking about a first-year head coach coming into unfamiliar territory can you get that season-defining win and Auburn's going to have plenty of opportunities down the stretch if it's not Ole Miss here maybe it comes in the Iron Bowl or another game or two that they still have in front of them the win against LSU on the road doesn't carry nearly the cachet now as we know the turmoil that the Tigers have dealt with on that side. But you look at Ole Miss and you begin to wonder what this team has left in the tank after a couple of emotional games. Uh, Matt Corral was banged up going into the LSU contest. They got down early and then their offense started to get going. But the strength of this Auburn defense has been their front four. If they're able to make Ole Miss at least relatively one-dimensional and get after Matt Corral, I think it's going to set up nicely for what this Auburn team can do. Meanwhile, Ole Miss, we know their defensive philosophy is all about keeping the ball in front of them and using relatively light defensive lines so they can have four or five defensive backs rally to the ball. Against Auburn, they're going to have to try and adjust their philosophy because Auburn's going to come at you with both of their running backs. They're going to use Bo Nix's legs. And I'm not at all surprised to see this number on the move from where it opened at FanDuel at minus one out to two and a half. I think you could even see it start to flirt with three 
uh, at a lot of shops throughout the course of the week. In my opinion, it's Auburn or pass. I've made some of the speculation that Auburn could have been down a couple of cogs. It looks like if there are any suspensions coming down in the plains, it won't be any truly impactful players in the starting 11 on either the offensive or defensive side. All right, last question. This game looked like it was going to be a really big one. Then Penn State went out and lost in that crazy nine overtime game. Although, Furman, as I was watching, I was thinking, hey, the over-under, maybe you don't need as much uh, insurance as you have in past years, right? Uh, Because when you're only going for two, it's hard to stack up as many points in the overtime. Penn State now out to a, I believe it's 18 and a half point road underdog. Ohio State quietly has been playing phenomenally well uh, and uh, they are an 18 and a half point favorite as I look at it right now. That's a big number but Penn State looked pretty uh, pretty mediocre at best. How do you see this one breaking down? In your mind, is Penn State basically done as a Big Ten East competitor. They have to win this one you know, in order to stay involved. Yeah, one qu- one question before we break this game down because I know you love to be the rules czar and try and overhaul things from an entertainment standpoint. Does Clay Travis give the college football third overtime two-point shootout rule a stamp of approval? I thought it was extremely entertaining to watch but mainly because Illinois and Penn State were both so inept with the plays that they elected to run in those particular situations. Yeah, and and I feel like, you know, not that starting at the 25-yard line and requiring a team to drive in is particularly reflective of overall team talent, but I feel like random two-point conversion attempts are very, very arbitrary, right? Like, for better or worse, if you start at the 25, you might have to kick a field goal Uh, There are lots of different defensive decisions that you have to make. Offense has virtually the entire playbook open to them. When you're trying a two-point conversion play from the three, it feels like it's going to create far more arbitrariness if uh, if that's the right way to describe it. Because you limit the overall number of plays which limits the overall outcome. If I'm the underdog, I think I probably like it more because it takes... The kicking game out, you know, a lot of times the better team has the better kicker in general. Uh, It takes away your uh, substitution patterns because most of the time on a two-point conversion, it's not like you're having to change the players that you put on the field. Uh, And I think it rewards the team that's offensively more ingenuitive because most teams don't have that many two-point plays but basically you're just running goal line offense, right? So I thought it was fun to watch but it felt like, say, a tie break in tennis as opposed to having to win games when you just play to seven points. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get where you're going with it. I think the word you were trying to get after was variance uh, with that kind of situation. You know, turning it into a two-point shootout there. I can understand why college football went this way knowing that some of these defenses are on the field for upwards. They're trying to limit snaps. It's clearly about player safety. Yeah, and I think it makes sense. I mean, the classic between Texas A&M and LSU, I think those snap counts, those teams for the gameplay Thanksgiving weekend, whether it was three or four years ago, we're out there for 130 or 140 plays, which is borderline excessive. Now, I can see a scenario, maybe it's a hybrid model that you start first and goal from the 10 instead of the 25. Uh, but I figured you were really going to advocate for your offensive lineman kicking field goals, backing them up in oh, five-yard yeah. increments. Starting that's, the, five, that's what should Going to the 10 to try and be able to make that happen. I figure that's where Clay Travis... No rush. No, let me explain. Let me explain my theory here. All right. This is, I think, a brilliant idea. Uh, In the NFL was where I was talking about it in particular, but I'd be okay with it in college. College, they don't allow you to tie, right? 
In the NFL, yeah. if you play 10 extra minutes, then you can end up in a tie game scenario. And so my argument, I think it's a good one, is if you finish tied after the 10-minute overtime, this is not, by the way, this is not in this is not in the postseason where clearly you have to have a winner to, in order to have someone advance to the next round of the playoffs. Uh, but bring out all five offensive linemen. They have to wear their existing pads. There's no rush. You put the ball on the tee or you can have a player hold it for them and they attempt field goals, penalty kick, shoot off, uh, shootout style. I think it would be riveting, must-see television. So what happens in that third day of fall camp when your star offensive lineman, whether it's a Roger Saffold or a Taylor Luan, pulls a hamstring and's out for the season because the Titans are trying to prep for this kind of scenario, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't prep. You don't prep for this. If it happens, it happens, and you just have to roll with the punches. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Now, it might be entertaining to watch in a skills competition, but uh, for a lot of the good ideas you have, we're going to put this one in the back burner. It's a brilliant idea. Off, it's brilliant. I don't know if this All right, is so idea. what's going to happen? Is Penn right. State going to get blown out by Ohio State? I mean, unless their offense figures things out. I mean, that was pathetic offensively. You had two weeks to prepare, and I know Sean Clifford was touch and go throughout the course of the buildup to the game as potentially being the Lions' starting quarterback. But you got to do a little bit more on the offensive side against a fighting Illini team that's really offered very little resistance against all of their opponents. But what might be worse is that the strength of this Penn State team has been their defense, and they gave up more than 300 yards rushing to Illinois after Brett Bielema challenged his offensive line to be better. So clearly some of the luster off of this game in the wake of Penn State losing in Iowa City and then following it up with a loss in Happy Valley, like you said, is more than a three-touchdown favorite against Illinois. For me, I just don't know if Penn State has the horses to stay in this game. I know James Franklin has pulled rabbits out of his hat before, but you talked about it. This Ohio State Buckeyes offense feels like it's playing downhill. C.J. Stroud looks to be more comfortable as a freshman running what Ryan Day wants to do. We know about Olave and Wilson. We know about the talented running backs that the Buckeyes have on the roster. But more importantly, let's see what we get from the Ohio State defensive backfield. Because if they're able to slow down Jahad Dotson and Parker Washington, I just don't know if Penn State has enough firepower. Again, I think Ohio State can name the final. I think Ohio State wins out and they get into the college football playoff if they do. Uh, And even I can't make a strong case for backing the underdog here in Columbus for, like you said, what should have been one of the marquee games of the Big Ten East pecking order suddenly loses an awful lot of its buzz in the wake of Penn State dropping back to back to see. Chop on, Furman. I'm headed down to Houston. I'll be there for game one and game two with my 11-year-old and then I'll be at the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Heck of a Rough sports week. week. Yeah, Rough tough week, week for you. Travis. Rough week. Tough, tough week for me. Uh, I'll be doing the shows, uh, the radio show, Uh, I'll be on uh, my television shows as usual but I will be on the road a lot. Furman, we're going to try to figure out how to get you on later in the week for uh, for our show but I won't be at home at all so uh, we're going to figure that out but for now, circling back one more time on Monday Night Football your favorite bet tonight is? First half under, shop around for a 21 if you can find it. 20 and a half, a little bit more tenuous but I think we're talking about defense, defense, defense and a game played at a very slow pace between Jameis Winston and Geno Smith, especially for the first 30 minutes. Awesome. Appreciate it, my man. I'll talk to you again soon. Always a pleasure, my friend. Safe travels and wish Link my best. I will not be rooting against the Braves this time around. I actually dislike the Astros a hell of a lot more.
Go Braves! I'm Clay Travis. He's Todd Furman. Get your bets in. FanDuel.com slash Clay. This has been The Fade.